0: Okay, everyone, good morning. Good morning. Uh, if you can't hear me, uh, just raise your hand and I'll speak up. First thing I'm going to do is get the next CD ready. It's great that you came this morning. This will be on different levels, and you can take what you want out of it. But hopefully, I will be either introducing you or reintroducing you to one of the greatest pieces of choral literature in existence: Box, Mass, and B minor. And the critics have no doubt uh, agree with me in that. I will also be talking more today than I will be next week, because next week we'll be listening more. Okay, it's a two-part series. But today, I, we really can't talk about Bach's b minor Mass without knowing about Bach himself. And so I will be talking a little bit about his life as quickly as I can, go through it. And particularly uh, his the testament of his Christian faith, which figured so uh, strongly in all of his output. Uh, It was the center of his existence. Of course, you understand he lived in a century, the 18th century, uh, which was quite different from our own. And religion probably, who knows, if you read the paper, it probably didn't have a more important place, but it, it was very important in his life. And I'm going to try to reveal to you how in this music his Christian faith, his theology is exhibited. Now, that doesn't weigh on your appreciation of this music at all. What it will do, hopefully, is increase your appreciation of it. There's some facts here. I have a handout for you. The facts at the beginning are just for you to read, and what I'm talking about will not necessarily follow this. But there's a wonderful little map here. Uh, in which I've circled the cities which I'll talk about where Bach lived. This is a map of Germany in the 18th century and it's self-explanatory. Who was Bach? Obviously everybody in the room right knows who Bach was. If you haven't heard uh, a lot of his music you've probably heard Yes the Joy of Man's Desiring," which comes from uh, one of his cantatas. But it certainly has been transcribed into every conceivable medium too. He lived in Germany in the 18th century, a period which we called the Baroque period. If you're a student of art, you know what the Baroque period is in art, and it's the same in music. It's flowery in its representation. Its its detail is very important. He was born on March 21st, 1685, in Eisenach, and that's on your little map there, circled, and it's... The, se- the same south-central German city where Martin Luther was born, believe it or not. So obviously, you know, if you've lived in a city with a friend or something, you know Bach knew Martin Luther, or he knew about him, even though he lived in a different century than Martin Luther. The name Bach was about as common as, I'll just take it right now, the Smith name in, you know, in this century. Bach was associated, the name Bach was always associated with musicians. And Johann Sebastian Bach was the culmination of the the lineage of musicians, certainly. His parents died when he was very young, and he was sent to live with his brother in Ordruf, another city I have circled. And in this city uh, and in this household, Lutheran orthodoxy held sway. In a nutshell, that was the absolute nature of Christianity as we know it, from John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one will get to heaven without believing in me. The doctrine of justification by faith and the authority of scripture in opposition to the pride of human reason. Now, this was a time in which uh, the age of reason was taking over. In like Bach knew Voltaire, uh, who was one of the important uh, figures in the Enlightenment. So that little... Uh, Opposition of ideas was holding sway in this period. Bach was well grounded in his faith. He depended on God, giving praise to him and gaining strength from him. His goal in writing church music was to glorify God, to deepen the worship of those who came to his services. And my, did he write music. Uh, you know, we were talking this morning in the choir about how busy we are. Well, they were busy then too, but they didn't have all the distractions that we do today. And it was possible for Bach to write a cantata during the week to be performed on Sunday. Perhaps the forces that sang it weren't as good as we have today, but he did that kind of thing. Bach um, often inscribed his music with the initials J.J., Jesus juva, Jesus, help. So we know how important it it was to him. That was a lot of times you found that at the beginning of one of his manuscripts, and, and let 's understand now nothing was printed, everything was written out by hand. it was manuscript. you know printing was around for a couple hundred years. The idea of publishing had not had not really taken over and uh, what he did at the end of his works was to have the initials S D G, Soli Deo Gloria, only to the glory of God. And that's going to figure, uh, importantly, in the B minor mass, in understanding uh, that this was a work that he wrote, he compiled at the end of his life to be his legacy. While Bach had an attraction for confessional orthodoxy, that is, the major theological statements of Lutheran orthodoxy. And for those of you who are students of that, I am not, but Mr. Cracky over here is. I know. We know that the uh, Augsburg Confession of 1530 uh, really held all of the tenets of that theological uh, orthodoxy in it. And Bach, in fact obviously knew it very well because in 1730 there was a big celebration on the 200 uh, what would have been the 300 200th anniversary of the uh, Augsburg Confession but it would be a mistake to say i think that he was totally tied to it his music also shows uh, evidence of pietism which was another movement a lutheran movement in the latter half of the 17th century which advocated a return to the godly and most importantly, a moral earnestness in leading one's life, which is a little bit in opposition to the other. One of the most telling examples of Bach's closeness to uh, his religion and his belief and his in, in Jesus, his his godliness, so to speak, was that he owned uh, we we have a copy of his uh, German Bible, which was annotated by a a man named Abraham Kaloff in the 17th century. And Bach had all kinds of annotations in it himself. And uh, this Bible, actually the original, is in St. Louis at Concordia Seminary, the Kaloff Bible of Bach. But I thought I'd read you something here uh, from what is perhaps the best biography. It's a little bit, well, it's not totally steep, but it's analytical in a way, by Christian Wolff, and I have that in my bibliography. And this is what it says. A section of 2 Chronicles 5, titled by Calof, as the glory of the Lord appeared upon the beautiful music, deals with the presence of the invisible God at the divine service in the temple. Verse 13 ends with the words, when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, then the house was filled with a cloud. It, at, it is at this very point in Bach's book that he added his own comment, and this is important. With devotional music, God is always present in his grace. Music prompted the appearance of the glory of God in the cloud, and the cloud demonstrated God's presence. Bach picked up the Hebrew notion of the presence of the invisible prompted by a physical phenomenon, the sound of music. But for the Lutheran theologian Bach, the metaphysical presence of God's grace replaced the visible proof of the physical cloud, grace replace something material. Another interesting aspect of, of Bach and his persona which figures in all of his music was his interest in puzzles and his interest in numerology. Now, you can listen to the b minor Mass and you can't tell anything about this, but people who know a little bit about the art, the uh, science of numerology, know that certain numbers are important. Obviously, three is represents the trinity. Uh, there are 27 movements in the mass. There didn't have to be, but there are 27, three times three times three. Uh, the number seven figures in a lot of the music, uh, the seven days of creation. Uh, a very interesting point, and maybe this is what got Bach interested in numerology. If you take the letters of the German alphabet, and you find out where B-A-C-H is and add them together, their position, the total, sum total is 14. If you add the position J-S-Bach together, it's 41, the exact inversion. Now, even more telling than that was in 1747, three years before his death, um, actually not in 1747, but a bit before, Bach was invited to, a, to uh, join a very uh, august society, the Mitzler Society in Leipzig he waited, declined, he waited till he was going to be the 14th member of the Mitzler Society. So, there's a little bit of humor there, I think. But I, don't, I, I can't get into numerology uh, this morning, but anyway, it figures in the Madison B Minor, and I'll talk a little bit about it as we listen to some of the movements, and hopefully we're going to hear at least two of them today. Unlike his contemporary Handel, and I hope you all know that Handel lived contemporaneously with Bach. They were both born in 1685. Handel lived nine more years since so 1759. But Handel, uh, though he was German, he traveled to England, lived there, he was much more cosmopolitan than Bach. Bach stayed in Germany all his life. And uh, that undoubtedly had, had an influence on what he was doing. And, I've circled some other little cities in there on the map and you can see, and I'm just gonna run through them quickly. He, of course, lived with his brother, as I said, early in life, and he had some employment elsewhere, but his first major place of employment was in Weimar. And now all of these cities here were oftentimes little city-states controlled by, you know, dukes or whatever, Uh, but it was all in 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 the area of Saxony. So he lived in Weimar from 1708 to 1717 where he worked in the court and the church. So he wrote a lot of church music during that time. He lived in Curtin. Do you see Curtin there? It's all not very far away from 1717 to 1722, where he was a court musician and basically wrote secular music. Now, this is interesting because in Curtin, Calvinism was much more strong than Lutheranism. And perhaps that's why Bach was where he was in the court rather than the church. Finally, his longest period of employment, 27 years, was in Leipzig, where he was a church musician at St. Thomas Church. And I'm sure you've heard of the St. Thomas Choir in Leipzig. He was also responsible for the music at three other churches in the city. So that's just a little bit about the life of Bach. And it was during during his time in Leipzig when he wrote most of his five cycles of cantatas, which are different than the Mass which we're going to talk about. Now, what is a Mass? I assume everybody in this room has some idea of what a Mass is. I mean, we just came out of one. Uh, but the point is, we don't call it the Mass, but it is is—it is what it is because it came from the, the Roman Catholics and it was Reformed. But I'm going to read you a quote of Martin Luther in a minute. It's the most solemn service of the Church, Holy Communion, Holy Eucharist, and it represents the commemoration and mystical repetition of the the Last Supper. So, Martin Luther had himself set forth in his Formula Missae of 1523, uh, his feelings about the liturgical tradition, and this is what he said. We therefore first assert it is not now nor never has been our intention to abolish the liturgical service of God completely but rather to purify the one that is now in use from the wretched accretions which corrupt it and point out an evangelical use. So keep that in mind. Anyway, the Mass just generally has two major sections. The propers, which change according to the church year. Hope you know what the church year is. Advent, it's what we go by in the church. And the ordinary, which doesn't change. And that is what the B minor Mass is. It's a setting of the text of the ordinary of the Mass the Kyrie, which we said this morning, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. The Gloria, in excelsis Deo, which is basically uh, a short group of verses from Luke 2:14, but mainly, mostly, the text comes from a liturg- medieval liturgical uh, psalm text, which is not, on, not different too much than the Deum, which we sang last Sunday, the three Tadea's. The next section of the Mass is the Creed, and it's the Symbolum Niceum, the, the Nicene Creed. The Sanctus is the next Holy, 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 and finally the Agnus Dei. Now, I hope I said five. There's five portions of the ordinary. And now, if you go to a very liturgical church, high church, you oftentimes hear all of these things sung, okay? We don't sing everything here. We sing some of those things. The Mass in B minor was not intended as a liturgical piece, okay? It was not to be sung in church. My goodness, it's two hours long. You couldn't do it. I know they stayed in church a long time, and the sermon was often much longer than we have here. It was the central portion. And the Kyrie, uh, the sermon followed the Kyrie, by the way, in the ordinary, in the Lutheran service. And then, But anyway, in Bach's Mass in B minor, which I just said was over two hours long, uh, he compiled it at the end of his life from mostly existing music. A lot of it, he, I think there's only two examples which he actually composed in the last years of his life. We, we date the B minor mass, the final compilation of it, 1748, 1749. He died in 1750, but a lot of it comes from before. He gathered it together, and he gathered his best music, and it was his legacy his statement of faith, and if you hear the music, as we're going to do uh, mostly next week, but some this week, you hear how the text, I hope you hear how the text is uh, really enveloping, uh, the music is enveloping the text, box setting of it. I mean, it comes right from his heart. Uh, He left it as legacy. It was not performed in toto during his life. It was never published. The first complete performance of the B-Modern Ma- Mass was in 1859. So, I mean, what, what else can we think about this except...
1: Uh,
0: I have not researched that totally, but I would, I would have to say, you know, at, at Bach's death, basically, uh, other styles were being taken over. And a lot of Bach's <laughs> music was uh, thrown out, honestly. It's amazing we have manuscripts as we do, because the new style of the Enlightenment, the style of the Stile or whatever, was taking over. Really, in fact, the St. Matthew Passion, which is another choral music a piece of choral music by Bach, you know, he wrote several passions: St. John, St. Matthew, and I think there's another one which isn't heard much. But anyway, those are the two famous ones. Its first performance after his death was in 1829, resurrected by Mendelssohn. So I think it was just that Bach was considered. Someone He was considered an old hat. His music was uh, just not appreciated. And that may be part of the reason for it. But we know uh, one thing about this mass. He put it all together. He actually himself bound it together and he put the SDG symbol at the end of the whole thing. And he put a title page before all of the uh, major movements. Now in the B minor mass, we have a, a Missa, which is the Missa Brevis, which is, it, I think I might have, let's look at the back of the first page, okay? Because at the back of the first page, uh, I have the entire outline uh, of, the, uh, of the Mass. And even though it has four movements, it really includes the five portions of the ordinary. Number four down there, you see, is the Osana, the Benedictus, and the Agnus Dei, okay? So the Kyrie is three movements. The uh, Gloria is nine movements, three times three. Okay, uh, It was actually revised to be placed in the Mass from a composition in 1733. And I'm going to just uh, take a break here and tell you that that's an interesting story in itself. In seven, February of 1733, uh, the elect- King Augustus of, of, the, of the area of Rebach was was living in Leipzig died and they declared a six-month period of mourning and there were no church services as such with music. There were church services, I'm sure, but not with festive music. So Bach had plenty of time to compose and he composed these two things the Kyrie and Gloria. It's what is called a Missa Brevis really, a short mass, but that's all it was. He composed that and in, in July of that year he actually uh, presented it to the, king, the dead king's son, who was ensconced in uh, Dresden. Now, Bach was very interested in moving to Dresden. Uh, if you read in the Bach Reader, which I've, you know, a lot of musicians would like to read that, but the letters of Bach, you find that Bach had problems with his job, just like we all do. He had arguments with the uh, church council all the time, uh, and he was really very disappointed with his life in Leipzig. Uh, and he wanted to leave. He wanted to go to Dresden. It was a city where there were Catholic music and Protestant music was sung, and he was presenting this, this Missa Brevis to this uh, son of the king, hoping that he would get the position in the in the court there. Well, he didn't. But he came back later on, and he he included it in the B minor mass. Now also, as I said, Bach used a lot of his music again and again, and I was... Surprised last uh, summer when we were on choir tour, uh, several of us went down to Trinity Church Wall Street to hear a rehearsal, and they were singing something. I said, "That sounds like the B minor Mass." Well, it was Cantata 191, which is a, the Kyrie and the Gloria. Cantata 191 is the same music, and you find this all the time in Bach. He reused things. Okay, so enough uh, enough fact right now. What we're going to do is have some listening examples, and. Uh, on the page one, uh, if you came early, you were listening to the Sanctus. We're not going to hear that again. And uh, all I can tell you is, on the back page, there's a, there's a discography. If, you don't, if you'd like to buy the b Minor Mash, you can get it on Amazon.com. There are different prices for it. And my bibliography there. An interesting book uh, that I got some of the theological things from was Bach Among the Theologians. So that's on the back. But on the, se- on the second page, is the outline of the Mass. We're going to hear uh, the Kyrie eleison. Now, I'm very proud that... We're not supposed to be proud, I know, but I'm very proud. <laughs> I'm very honored that we have had two performances of the b minor Mass in this church during my time here. In 2003, the Ensemble Corund from Basel, Switzerland, came and performed it uh, here in Toda. I mean, it was just amazing. They came again and did some other Bach works uh, in 2007, I think it was. But in, ba- in 2003, we had a performance of the B minor mass uh, with early instruments. And that's what Bach would have used. We're talking about hunting horns, fabulous horns. We're talking about oboe d'amores, which are somewhat softer and more sweet-sounding than the oboe today. We're talking about strings, which play without vibrato, etc. drums would sound differently. You've heard them. In fact, last year, the second time we heard it, uh, the Georgia Tech Chorale performed the B minor mass with the New Trinity Baroque orchestra and it was also a stellar performance and the director told me it had not been in, they performed in Atlanta before they came here. Not been performed in Atlanta since 1990 when Robert Shaw did it and this recording by Robert Shaw, I think it's not very expensive on Amazon. He uses early instruments but he uses a bigger choir. The ensemble, Carooned, uh actually I'm going to play you the Kyrie from this Okay? Bigger choir. And I'm going to talk about it in just a minute before we hear it. But the ensemble Karun used two voices to a part, which was probably what Bach used. Remember he had boys sopranos and so forth and so on. Okay. So we're going to listen to the Kyrie. It begins with four measures of declamatory. That means strong. Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy on me. You know, Bach was clearly... Uh, in his time and in his theological standpoint aware of the human condition. And it was very strong. And then, right after that opening, uh, the orchestra begins. And this is a fugue movement. Now, a fugue, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail about this, but it's a fugue with orchestral company. We cannot hear the whole thing. It's the longest movement in in the uh, entire uh, b minor Mass at 11 minutes. So I just want to... uh, play just a portion of the opening so you can uh, hear it. It builds up somewhat, but it doesn't use, as we'll hear in the next movement, the Gloria, it doesn't use the trumpets, the clarino trumpets, and it doesn't use the timpani, which is uh, the festive part that would be uh, reserved for the Gloria. So uh, the text is there. I don't think you need a text since it's just Kyrie eleison. And this is the Robert Shaw chorale performance in 1990. Never performed in Atlanta until the Georgia Tech Choir did it uh, in 2011. So it's it's a difficult work. Uh, I mentioned the two times it was performed here. Justin Brown did it with a symphony also in recent years. But uh, that's it. I think Richard Westerfield did the St. Matthew, uh, the previous conductor. Okay, so I need to uh, start this. And this should be the Kyrie. begin this long orchestral imitative section which has the motive, you'll hear it, and ties everything together. Robert Shaw uses soloists at the beginning on each part and then the full choir. We'll listen to just a bit of this. It just sets up a very calming, penitential mood, I think, if you want to think in the abstract of what what these sounds are meaning to you. You hear that motive that permeates everything. Certainly, you've recognized it. And you grabbed onto it. That's what I mean by the fugue—the repetition of that motive while everything else is going on around it. And this, in just a second, you'll hear the first vocalist, the soloist, sing "Kyrie Eleison." Here we go, the tenor. He takes up the same motive that you heard at the beginning, the alto. Sopranos.
1: And the bass
0: is the final entry. Okay, that's all I'm going to do for you because it goes on for 11 minutes. But listening to this kind of thing, you always close your eyes. It's kind of like standing in front of a painting and you have your own, you you understand a lot about it, but you stand there and you see things. Okay, if you're listening to this, you don't need to know anything about it. You can just pick on and just feel maybe what Bach has done in this very calming uh, opening movement of the B minor Mass in which, Lord have mercy. Then we have Christ have mercy, which is a duet. They're gonna play that. You see on your outline there. And finally, the third uh, invocation of the Kyrie, Lord have mercy, is a chorus movement, but it is written kind of like in the old style, in the motet style, like Palestrina from a previous century. And Bach used in the entire B minor Chorus movements, which were well-balanced, as I'm going to point out during our discussion this week and next, symmetrical uh, in where they appeared. And just remember that. And he used uh, duets, solos, whatever, with uh, interesting instruments like the valveless horn and so forth, which we're going to uh, hear in a minute. And uh, that was it. Uh, Chorus, solos, and duets. So we're going to move now to the Gloria, and I'm going to change to the other uh, group, the Ensemble Caroon. Now, let me just tell you right now, there's a little bit of scratchiness to this uh, CD. I I tried to clean it last night, so I apologize for that. Uh, It was the demo CD they gave me. It's a live performance that they did in New York State before they played here. The Gloria is the second part of that 1733 Missa Brevis. It's nine parts. So let's look at our handout a minute. On the second page, I'm going to play movement four, which is the Gloria in Excelsis, which comes from Luke two, and interestingly, it without break goes into this uh, Et in Now, what do we what do we hear here? In the Gloria, we hear it in triple time, one two three, which is why didn't he write it in four four or two four? He wrote it in triple time, the Trinity. I'm I'm sure that's what it is, it's very joyous. It has the trumpets and the timpani. It's a hymn of jubilant praise, glory to God. You can't not tap. I mean, I, I can't make you stop tapping your foot. Let's put it that way. But when it gets to Et intera Terra Pax, I want you to notice the change because Et In Terra Pax means "and on earth peace." Well, there wasn't a lot of peace on earth even then, and it changes mood totally. It's poignant. It's dramatic. He was very aware of the human condition, but as it progresses, he brings back in the horns and the drums. He had hope. So the building of sonority with the text, uh, peace on earth to men of goodwill, uh, bonae voluntatis. That's when he brings back in the the exuberant joy of the opening. So, uh, we will hear now the ensemble uh on the Gloria, uh, opening the Gloria, and let's see, this is CD. Be, hold on to your seats. Their tempos are just incredible, and they only have eight singers. Sorry. That's the wrong one, because I put the wrong CD in. Part of the creed. Here we go. is getting ready. Oh, I'll, I'll speak to that in a minute. I don't seem to be able to be doing this very well. Let's see. stop. Okay. Let's see that's Dama's Tay. okay. part of my CD15. Okay, that's the problem. It's five. Okay. Much better. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. It just swings with joy. They're German singing Latin. on earth. Notice that every voice is coming in. This is fugal. We now have three. We'll have four in a minute and then five. There's five voices, five parts. And the trumpets are coming back in, as I said giving a feeling of uh, more joy. Right there, he repeats Ed and Terrapox three times. Each step a little higher. Three. As we begin, this will be over in a second. great joy. And that's all I can do today. Is there any question? Uh, I, d- I didn't leave much time for questions obviously. Someone asked me about uh, CD. This is a very good one the Robert Shaw. Uh, if you want early instruments you can go with uh, John Elliott Gardner or someone. They're all, they're all good the ones I put down here. Does anybody have a quick question? Yes. I,
1: I was just kind of we listen to this, what part what, what part is box alone and what is, what is it's all maybe a conductor, I mean does he, did he write, oh, I see. Did he wrote this, did he write, I want this, I want to play here, I want this, yes. for certain instruments yes. I and mean, everything is, but, is but there any embellishment that the conductor might add an instrument to fill something
0: out? or. Uh, no, before. no, the instrumentation is specified, the text is specified, the notes are specified, but there's very little markings otherwise as, as was typical of the period. So the uh, interpreter can decide whether they want a large orchestra and certainly you know if you listen to uh, some conductors they'll have bigger orchestras, bigger choirs. I mean that kind of thing. But it is pretty much exactly what you got to do as far as uh, singers, notes, score and whatever. Any other questions? So next week we'll, we'll do more listening and we'll talk about relationships of the text in the music and we'll probably get to hear uh, a, a lot more specifics. If you don't want to bring this back, I'll have it again, but it'll be the same one next week. Thank you very much.